Hey there. As we get into this message today, I need to give you a bit of a heads up. So the vast majority of this message was recorded during our 9 a.m. service at uh, Fort Atkinson, at our Fort Atkinson campus. But just before the sermon wrapped up, we ran into a bit of a te technical difficulty. In other words, we, uh, apparently I need to delete more files more quickly off of the um, SD card that we record to. So we, we ran out of space at the end. Um, and so the last little bit of the message was not recorded. And so the last bit of the message um, will look and sound a little bit different than most of it because it'll be recorded. It was recorded uh, here at our Cottage Grove location on the Monday after. All right, let's get into God's word. So I got to share a deer hunting story with you from a couple weeks ago. Um, who else here is a deer hunter? Anyone? There's a number here. All right. Okay. Very, very cool. Very cool. So a couple weeks ago, I was hunting with my dad and my little brother, Jacob. And uh, so I got I to gotta tell you, so I've, I've got kind of a, got to give a little backstory to this story. So um, for a number of years, we hunted on some land of my uncle's. And my uncle has some really good hunting land but not the land of my uncles that we were using. Um, because he, he, a lot of his land is really good, and so he rents it out and makes a good amount of money. And so we kind of had the section that nobody wants, so we just hunted that, <laughs> that section. So I hadn't seen a deer in years. Um, so basically, I just like, for me, deer hunting was like going up and eating chili and going out for fish fry and stuff like that. That's kind of what, you know, and hanging out with my family. Um, but then last year, my brother bought one of my uncle's prized sections of land. So then we got a good section. And I was all excited to hunt last year, but then last year comes the day of deer hunting openers when I got my positive COVID test and I couldn't go anywhere. So I didn't get to hunt deer, like my dad and brother got some deer, I didn't get to go. I went to the late season in December, but by then we didn't see anything. And so when I went hunting this year, um, I didn't really realize it, but even though I was there and, and doing all the things, I kind of stopped expecting to see deer. I, I realized, like, in hindsight, I kind of had, like, an Eeyore mentality, like, I never see a deer, like, what, you know, I just, whatever, you know, and it really came out to me, I realized this when um, my brother, being my kind brother that he is, said, said Nate, why don't, I'm going to walk this tall uh, marsh area up in the front, because they're probably just staying in there all day, and you can't see them from outside of it, why don't you get in the tree stand near it, I'll see if I can kick some out, and, uh, uh, you know, see if you can get a shot. So I'm up in the tree stand, and I'm sitting up there, and I realized, well, even though I was up there and, like, doing the things, I was in the stand, I honestly, I was sitting like, nothing's coming out. I don't, I don't see anything, you know. And sure enough, what do you know, all of a sudden I hear a little noise, and two deer come running out, and just sit up, and I get one shot, and then my gun jams, and I don't get another good one, and whatever, it's, it's fine. But, but uh, I realized man, honestly, I had totally, like, stopped believing that I would see a deer. Like, I was out there. I was in the stand. I was doing all the things, but I was totally, like, had stopped expecting that I would ever, like, see a deer again. <laughs> and, and then later that week, I did see another one, and, and this is good land, and, and while I did not get a deer this year, I'm now confident that I will see some in the future, and I think next year will be my year, you know. But, uh, I really realized, like, man, I had stopped because I'd gone so many years without really seeing one. I had really stopped, see, like, expecting to see a deer. Like, I'd stopped believing that anything like that would happen, like, for me, you know? Even though I was still doing the things, I really had kind of lost faith in it. 
Now, if that can happen with something like just deer hunting, you think that can also happen when it comes to our faith? When it comes to expecting God to do what he says he's going to do? Ask that question today because we are in this Advent series. This Advent series, and Advent, as we mentioned at the beginning of the worship of the service today, of that it's a season of preparation where you're preparing for, for Jesus to come as a baby at Christmas, for him to come to the cross to die for our sins, for him to come into our hearts, for him to come into this world to set all things right. And as we're in this series, the end is near, where we're really preparing for Jesus to come again. We have a lesson today that really kind of challenges us to realize that a lot of people are going to stop believing that Jesus is actually coming back. And they're going to stop believing that, that Jesus does what he says he's going to do. And as this lesson challenges us, we have every reason then also to be encouraged about what Jesus says, about the fact that he is coming, that he will do what he says he is going to do. And so today we're going to ask the question, so we can take to heart and think about the way we live and what we are expecting, we're going to ask, what are you waiting for? The lesson we have, it's Luke chapter 18, verses, verse 8b, the second half of verse 8. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The lesson is pretty short, but there's a lot packed in here, a lot of, of layers, a lot of significant things going on in the, these, these verses. So these, the, this verse, so this, this half verse here, it's a sentence, it's a question Jesus asks, and he packs a lot in these words. We've got to, first of all, jump into this word, the phrase, the Son of of man. And my clicker is giving me a hard time this morning. There we go. The Son of Man. Jesus, this is the most common way that Jesus refers to himself. And just by looking at it, you might think, okay, well, Jesus is just saying, like, I'm a person or I'm a human, which, why would he do that? This term packs a lot. And especially it comes out when you look in the Old Testament, if you go to Daniel chapter 7. Because in that chapter, you have Daniel, the famous Daniel in the lion's den, has this weird dream. There's a lot going on, and we're not going to unpack most of it, but I just want to point out one big thing, is that in the dream, he sees God, and then he sees a little throne next to him, and it's empty. And why is there an empty throne next to God? Well, God created people. If you go back to Genesis, he created Adam and Eve, and he said, said to go and, and to rule over and have dominion over creation. God created us to rule with him to partner with God, to be walking pictures of God in this world, to, to, to create and to do things in this world that look like God, to partner with him, to rule with him. But instead of partnering with God, Adam and Eve didn't trust God and started doing things their own way. The partnership was broken. That throne is vacated. So you've got this empty throne there, but then one who is what Daniel refers to as like a son of man, goes and sits in that throne. He gets to go and sit with that throne. The partnership is back. The partnership is renewed. Jeff, can I have you just click to the next one? And then I'm just going to, if you can be, be on the computer there, hit the arrow. Yeah. All right. The partnership, and I think I might just, if you want to stand, would you mind sitting on the stool back there? And I'll just give you a little point for when to go to the next. Okay. All right. The, part, the, the throne is filled, one like a son of man sits in the throne, so you see that the partnership between God and humanity is restored, but then there's also something else significant about this, this person. We're told that 
the people worship him. Scripture is very clear. Who do you worship only? God. And so here we have a character in this scene who is both human, but also worshiped as God. So when Jesus refers to himself as a son of man, this is a big deal. Because here we have the one who is a human, who is restoring the partnership, who has this position of authority, but then also is worshipped as God. And this is how Jesus refers to himself. And at first glance, it might look like he's just describing, well, I'm just a person. It actually carries a ton more weight than that. It's a very, very significant term. So he says, when the Son of Man comes, next, when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? When you think about Jesus coming, when he says these words, at first, Okay, well, Jesus has already come. He was born at this point, right? He's already an adult. But there are some new ways from this point going forward where he would come in a more visible way. When you go to the scene of Jesus' trial, when Jesus is standing before the Jewish leaders, he says, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. There's a couple of ways going forward where we would see Jesus coming in a more visible way. First of all, him just coming on the cross is actually uh, seeing the Son of Man coming and that partnership restored. He's being mocked as the king of the Jews there, but that's actually how he's bringing his kingdom. Because there he is fulfilling what the Father called him to do, to pay for the sins of the world, to take the justice for all of humankind's sins, to defeat it so that we could be right with God. There on the cross, we see Jesus coming, the Son of Man coming in a way. But then all that works out, all that happens, so that, of course, ultimately he can come again to set things right. Jesus will, after Jesus rose from the dead, after Jesus died, he rose from the dead. He was there and vis- uh, visibly appeared to people for 40 days, and he ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's going to return, he's going to come again to set all things right. So Jesus now, he says, when the Son of Man Referring to himself and then taking with all this background, when the Son of Man comes, he's going to come to the cross, he's going to come again, will he find faith on the earth? There's something in this term, will he find, that doesn't really get captured in our English. There's actually a Greek word that we don't have a translation for. But basically what it does is express anxiety or, or doubt to a question. So let me give you an example of maybe how we would would do this in, in, in English now. Got a picture of this, Ruthie and, and myself and Sibley, our dog here. We, have to, we did our, our Christmas tree last week, and we did cut your own Christmas tree. This is one of our traditions we like to. Who, do you guys like to cut your own Christmas tree? Who likes to cut your own Christmas tree? Yeah, if you've, I don't know how it is in the Fort Atkinson area, but around Cottage Grove, they, like, the, the supply is really short compared to the demand. Um, so the place we used to go typically is closed by the Sunday after Thanksgiving because they're out. And then the place we went last year it, as a replacement for that didn't even open this year because they cut down too many trees last year. So we were looking around. Once we found a spot, they actually had it where you could reserve, uh, where you could go and, and get your, your tree. So we reserved it right away. We went last Sunday to make sure we could do it. We could get a cut-your-own-tree because you could ask the question, if we waited till this weekend, will they even find a tree? Because it's doubtful if we were to wait that you would even find one, right? That's the, by this question, you're not simply saying, you know, will you find a tree? There's a, there's a doubt cast with it. There's this, this I, if you wait, will they even find one? Probably not. That's the idea with what Jesus is saying here. Will he find faith on the earth? 
He's not really going to see, he's, he's, he's like expecting that there's not going to be much for faith on the earth. When the Son of Man comes, there's not going to be much. Will he find it? It doesn't even really look like it. He's casting doubt on it. That's a pretty significant thing. When the Son of Man comes, will he even find faith? And what is faith? Faith is to, to be persuaded. That's really at its core what that word means, is to be persuaded of something or someone. Will, will anyone be persuaded of something? Will anybody be persuaded of someone when the Son of Man comes? What, what is Jesus looking for people to be persuaded of? Or who is Jesus looking for people to be persuaded of? Well, that answer helps us answer this question what are you waiting for? And to, to get to that answer, we've got to go back to, to what really leads Jesus to even ask this question. So Jesus was traveling with his disciples en route. Well, they were going to go to Jericho, but then ultimately this is the last trip towards Jerusalem before he has, there's Holy Week, and then he ultimately dies on the cross. And as he's traveling with his disciples, he tells them this parable in order to teach them to keep on praying to pray, 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 and to never give up. And so what's the first thing that Jesus wants them to be persuaded of? You should be persuaded that, that, that prayer is worth it, and it's not fruitless. Keep doing it. God will answer your prayer. God will listen to your prayer. Keep on going to him. Keep on asking. It's the first thing that Jesus wants people to be persuaded of. But then he tells a story that, that's significant. Now, I usually get the pictures and things from this website, and they're usually pretty decent where they have these nice drawings and stuff, and they're free of use to use online. When it comes to the story that Jesus tells the parable, the pictures are kind of ridiculous, and so I was like, I shouldn't even use them, and then I decided, you know what, you guys can just all laugh with me. Go ahead. This is how, or no, go to the next slide then. This is how they depict the old lady, the, 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 the widow and the judge. <laughs> come on what is this about it's like a modern cartoon character um pretty ridiculous but what, <laughs> what it is what does the, the parable that jesus tells is of this widow who comes to this judge and comes to this judge and and, and, and says to, to ask him keeps demanding of him to bring justice against my adversary to bring justice in this dispute that i have what she specifically says, grant me justice against my adversary. The word justice, I think a better word or a more helpful word there would be to vindicate against my adversary. Because the word adversary here is describing someone who is your opponent in a civil dispute or like a lawsuit. Now, we have a lot of baggage when it comes to lawsuits today, so we've got to kind of be careful to, 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 to not carry too much of that into this situation. But think about in Jesus' day that you would have a dispute between people. Maybe somebody wanted, said that that set of land is mine or this cattle is mine and not yours or whatever. And, and you would have these, these, these arguments between people, these disputes between people. And someone may, especially in the case of a widow, try to take something from hers that is rightfully hers. And so the judge, or she goes to the judge and says, vindicate me. There's someone who is opposing me and is trying to, to say that I'm in the wrong, that I did this wrong thing, trying to take what is rightfully mine. Now, judge, bring me justice, vindicate me, rule against this enemy 
of mine. This is a significant picture. It's not just a whatever example that Jesus throws out there because this is a repeated theme in the Old Testament. We read that lesson from Psalm 43. When it opens up and it says, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. I was chatting with Pastor Kay um, a couple days ago, and it's interesting. So he and I, when we study the lessons, we typically study them separately, do a, come to our own like themes, pick out our own lessons, and then kind of as the week goes, sometimes we'll just kind of say, hey, I found this interesting thing, or what are you going to do with that? We, again, we chat about it a little bit. He also chose a psalm for today with basically, he chose a different psalm. I think it was 82 maybe. I don't remember for sure. But with basically the exact same message, vindicate me, God. God led him in, in that same sort of direction because it's one of those things. It's this repeated theme in the Old Testament is that there is an enemy fighting against, working against the people of God, trying to hurt the people of God, trying to take from the people of God. And there is this outcry from God's people, God, vindicate us, rule against the enemy, bring justice against the enemy, set things right against the enemy. This is the outcry of the people that God in the Old Testament. And it's one of those things that I think sometimes we can lose in New Testament Christianity. We don't tend to talk about that as much. But it is there. It is there in the New Testament message as well. Take a look at 1 Peter 5.8, where it says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. The word enemy there, a better word would be adversary. It's the exact same word as the story with the widow. It's describing an enemy who is working against you in a civil suit. Maybe you've heard people say that the devil is like the slanderer. He's trying to accuse you. He's trying to take something from you. He accuses the children of God. He tries to say that, say that God is not really for you. He tries to say that you cannot actually be right with God. He tries to say that you shouldn't actually trust God. He does like what he did with Adam and Eve at the beginning. Did God really say? The devil is your opponent in this civil lawsuit. And he has worked to steal from us that which is good and right. And if you think about it, after the fall into sin, what happened to this world? This world that was supposed to be this place where people ruled together with God, this beautiful world that God created, where people could partner with him, it became a world full of thorns and thistles, of pain and suffering and death. The devil worked against humanity try to take away this beautiful partnership and beautiful world that God created. The celebration that we have at this time of year, though, is that God vindicates his people. That God works on behalf of his people to destroy the enemy. And this is actually why we sang Joy to the World today. Because verse 3 of Joy to the World says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. God rules, God works to restore what the enemy stole. God sent Jesus 
to vindicate his people, to work against the adversary, to restore what God intended for his people. A relationship with him, a life free from the pain and the suffering and the death. To restore a partnership where you are, are in a creation that God has given us that is beautiful and right and wonderful. God works to vindicate his people against the enemy. And so, what are you waiting for? Are you, what are you waiting for? We get to be waiting for God to vindicate us, to come against the enemy, to, to, to fight against the one who has stolen, who has worked to steal from God's people what God intended for us to have. What are you waiting for? Well, Jesus, in our lesson, asked this question. He says, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And remember, when he asked this, he's expecting the answer is not much. Already in Jesus' day, we see a lot of people no longer waiting, waiting for God to vindicate his people. Let me show you, show you how you can see that. If you go to Luke chapter 2, after Jesus is born and Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, they bring him into, into the city to, to do the whole great things, to bring him in, to circumcise him, and name him and everything. And there is, there's a couple of, 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 of pretty cool figures there. You've got Simeon, you have Anna. Simeon, we have that, you know, if you, if you grew up in a church that had a lot of the, the liturgy, maybe you sang the, the Nunc Dimittis is what it's called. It's one of those great church names. Not words we throw around very often, but it's that now let us depart in peace. For my eyes have seen the glory of salvation. Well, he is noted as one who is waiting for the consolation of Israel. One of the things, if you read through the Gospels, is one of the ways they refer to people who tend to receive what Jesus says is that they were waiting for the consolation of Israel. If that's unique about them, what does that mean about most of the other people? They were not waiting for it anymore. Right? If this is a distinctive quality, if this makes Simeon unique that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, that sends the message that many of the people were no longer waiting. They were no longer really looking for God to vindicate his people. Just, just pay attention. If you read through the Gospels, when it notes different people, that, that, or maybe it'll say that they were looking for the kingdom of God. If it's unique that there are people looking for the kingdom of God, that means that there are a lot of people who were no longer looking for the kingdom of God. If that sets them apart, if that's unique, that tells us something about a lot of the other people. So many people were no longer looking for the kingdom of God, or if they were, they were looking for the wrong kind of kingdom of God. Like in John chapter 6, so after Jesus feeds the 5,000 plus, Jesus withdraws, Why? Because the people wanted to make him a king by force. They had a vision for how God would vindicate his people, and that vision included them basically doing it. All right, God's got this guy here. We're going to do it. We're going to bring it forward. We're going to advance the kingdom of God. They were no, really, no longer really looking for God to bring the kingdom but they were looking for how they could advance the kingdom of God. How did they get there? How did people in Jesus' day get there? I don't know. After a few years, what, maybe like four years or three years of me not seeing a deer, I kind of gave up expecting to see one, <laughs> right? 
The promise to Abraham was made thousands of years before. And then there's a promise made to David, and there's a promise made again and again through Isaiah. Isaiah, some 700 years before the time of Christ. And people waited. And it appears that they got tired of waiting. Or maybe after, you know, they were... The northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes were defeated by the Assyrians, and then you've got the southern kingdom was defeated by, you know, Babylon, and you've got the Persians, and then also the, the Greeks come in, and you've got the Romans, you've got all these other em- enemies. Maybe you get so discouraged that you stop, you stop thinking God will actually do what he said he's going to do. Maybe God wants you to do it for him. You know, because apparently God's not going to do it. You can kind of see how people get there. It's not right, but you can see how they get there. It's important for us to see how they get there because then we can consider how do we maybe get there. You know, does the world, people often talk to you about how bad the world is. Do we sometimes get discouraged by all the stuff we see in the news or on social media? You know, I, I don't a lot of times even watch the news so much anymore, but still it's like hard to ignore. Like it just pops up all over the place, this thing, that thing, whatever thing. Do we get discouraged? where we forget that God is going to come through and defeat the enemy? Do we start trying to do God's job for him? You know, if God doesn't seem to be fixing this problem, maybe I need to do it for him. And don't get me wrong, God wants you to take action sometimes, but we always can look to him as the source, as the Savior. In what ways, what, what promises of God has God made for you that maybe you've stopped looking for him to answer or maybe you've started just trying to do it your own way. Or instead of looking and saying, okay, how does God want me to handle this problem or what does God say about this? We simply just think about, okay, how do I think I should fix it? What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for God to act, for God to come through on his promises? Or have you stopped looking for God to bring the ultimate solution and then for God to come through in your life today. The good news is that, that even if you're, you've stopped waiting for God to do what he said he was going to do, even if you kind of lost sight of that, or, or maybe you, you, you know what God says he's going to do, but you were kind of like me in the deer stand. Like, I was out there. I was in the right spot, right? But I wasn't really expecting it. Like, you're here. You're at church. So obviously, you know what the gospel says, but, you know, if, you're, if you kind of lost the expectation or lost the excitement of what God's going to do, there's good news for you. The good news is that even though people were not, not necessarily waiting for the Savior to come, even though so many people were not believing that God would do what he said he would do, Jesus did come to fight against the enemy. In John chapter 12, and this is just right before, just shortly before Jesus goes to the cross, as this is a Holy Week saying of Jesus. He says, now is the time for judgment in this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Jesus did come. God did vindicate his people. Jesus allowed the enemy to do his worst against him. I mean, Jesus allowed himself to be killed. And by doing so, he showed that perfect love always wins out. He showed what perfect love really looks like. 
He perfectly loved and obeyed his Father all the way to allowing himself to be killed on the cross. He perfectly loved us to the end so he could absorb all the justice that our sins deserve so he could rise to set us right, to restore to us what we were meant to have, to restore to us what had been stolen. Jesus came and vindicated God's people on the cross, and he will, if he came to the cross, and if he really lived in this world, he will come again, and there will be a day where no thorns infest the ground, no sins and sorrows grow, where his blessings flow, far as the curse was found, all those things that were taken from us, the way the world is, is, is broken the way it is, Jesus will return, this broken world as we know it, will come to an end, there will be resurrection you will stand with God with life that you're meant to have. Beautiful new creation, new heavens and new earth. What are you waiting for? You know, that phrase, what are you waiting for, we, we, we use it in, in, in a couple different ways. I mean, in the one way we think about, okay, like, what are you waiting for? Like, what are you looking forward to? But we also use it to talk about, like, what are you waiting for? Like, like get moving, get acting, get, get living. And that fits for us today, too, as we, are, or we, we think about what we are waiting for, for, for Jesus to, to, to do, what Jesus has done on the cross, and how he's going to return to set all things right. It also means that there's something that we can do today, that we can get moving on today, that we should get moving on today. There's a reason why we had two gospel lessons, and the, the first one we had there came from Luke chapter 17, and Jesus made that really important point, that the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God, there's this, this two ways that we can think about the kingdom of God, and, it, and it's this really just amazing situation that we're in now as Christians, is that we are not yet in the kingdom of God. We are looking forward to being with Jesus in his kingdom. But while we are not yet in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is already in us. You are not yet in the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God is already in you. There are these two ways to that, that we, we, we like to refer to these things. So we have the kingdom of glory. That's what we're looking forward to being in. But the kingdom of grace already exists inside of you. You are not yet in the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is already in you. Jesus is already ruling your heart. And you now then get to already live with him as king. And for these last, uh, before we started the Advent season, we had this sanctification series, right, where we were talking about living our lives of faith. And we had that series for what? When we started it in April, wrapped it up in, in November, what is that, like seven months of talking about living our lives of faith. And, and what is that? That's living. That's living in the reality that the kingdom of God is inside of us. And that our hearts now are ruled by King Jesus. And that we can trust that God is doing what he said he would do. That we can live believing that the king has come and he has vindicated his people on the cross and that he will come again to set all things right and that even now he is working on our behalf. We can live today trusting and living in accordance with the fact that we have a king who comes through on what he promised. That we have a king who defeats the enemy. And we have a king who restores to us what God has promised us and gives to us what God has promised to us. 
today you, you, you might be facing, you might feel like the world is against you. You might feel like you are surrounded by the enemy. And there is, there is evil at work in our world. But you can live today trusting in what God has promised you and knowing that you have a king who fights for you against the enemy. And so you can live out your faith according to what God says. Today, this, this, this week, instead of, instead, of trying to, uh, instead of trying to figure out your own way to make things right, and this week, instead of living stressed out and anxious and in despair because not sure what's going to happen, you can live this week going back to God again and again. Go to him in prayer. Go to him and trust that he's going to set it right. Instead of you trying to figure out how to do things, you could go back to his word and say, okay, what does God say to me about how I should handle this? What does God say about how I should live this out? What does God say about this? And then trust God to act. You can go to God's word and follow what he says and then trust that he's going to do something about it, that he's going to carry things out according to his plan. He's going to carry out his promise. You can go to him again and again and live knowing that he has come into this world. Jesus has come to vindicate his people. Jesus will return, and Jesus is ruling right now in your heart. And God's going to come through on his promise. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe, maybe later. Maybe it's not till Jesus returns, but he will come through. We get to, each and every day, go back again and again and remind ourselves the answer to this question. We get to remind ourselves what we're waiting for. That we have a God who has promised that he will set things right. We have a God who promises that he will fight against the enemy. We have a God who has come through on that promise. Jesus came and defeated that enemy. Jesus will come again to, to once and for all drive out evil once and for all, to set things right once and for all. And that king is ruling in our hearts now. So let's live today knowing the answer to this question. What are you waiting for? 